Okay, we're going through the Old Testament verse by verse, and we're up to 1 Samuel chapter 18. So I appreciate guys that pray for the ministry here and pray for the teaching of the word and everything. I'll have to ask you a favor, though, to pray extra hard today. I uh, usually try to proofread my message and everything and look for typos or funny wording or anything. And I was, it was a long week, and I was pretty tired this week. And uh, I just realized during the worship that I didn't get a chance to do that. So if you hear some funny stuff today, just try to filter through that and say, okay, he didn't proofread it, so that's why it sounds that way. So appreciate prayers on that. First Samuel uh, chapter 18. Yeah, we're in this part of the book of First Samuel where we run into this young man, David, and he's destined by the Lord to be the next king of Israel. And he turns out to be the greatest king of Israel's history too. So he's a man that's said to be after God's own heart. So there's a lot we can learn from David's life and his character. And uh, we're going to jump back in the story if you want to step back a few verses to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we'll jump into verse 57. It says, Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, he just uh, had that fight with Goliath and won. It says, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand, So you can picture this, young David, he's hanging on to this trophy here. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, and that's uh, Saul's son, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So Jonathan here, he's the son of King Saul, and we saw him a few chapters back, if you can recall. When the Philistines gathered to fight Israel at that one point, and remember they showed up with 30,000 chariots, and they had 6,000 horsemen, and so many foot soldiers, it says you couldn't even hardly count them. Jonathan at that point decided to sneak out of the camp with his armor bearer and attack them. (laughs) So... uh, This is an amazing picture of a guy who's not afraid to fight the enemies of the Lord here. And he made a statement when he had his armor bearer with him, and he said, you know, nothing restrains the Lord from saving, whether it's by many or by few. So we see the heart of Jonathan there. He was ready to take on the enemy, even if he was severely outnumbered. As long as he knew he was with the Lord and the Lord was working through him, he was ready to step out. So this is... This is the man Jonathan we see mentioned here in uh, verse 1. Now, when we, what we know about Jonathan is we think about the things we've seen with him. Uh, he's a man of great faith. He has great boldness. And he was fearless when it came to fighting the enemies of God's people. So when he saw David take on Goliath by himself, you know, with nobody backing him, and he just was trusting God of Israel as his strength when he ran into battle against him, Jonathan sensed an instant connection here with David. And you can see this. Remember, we we pictured this last time where the whole army apparently was sitting down just watching David take on this giant, figuring David's probably going to get smashed and will be embarrassed. So after David actually knocked him down and went after him, then it says the army got up and decided to go after him. So a very interesting picture. And somewhere in all of that, Jonathan was there. 
And I don't know that Jonathan was in his fear like the rest of the guys, but he probably just didn't know what to do. I mean, he's not afraid to take on all these soldiers before, so I can't see fear stopping him unless maybe dad ordered him, don't you dare do anything, I don't know. But Jonathan now, he sees David step up and do this, and it just thrills his heart. And now he sees there's somebody here that he can really relate to, somebody that loves the Lord, somebody that's fearless when it comes to fighting the enemies of God, and they have great faith. They just really trust the Lord. So Jonathan sees that connection. Let me ask you, have you ever met another Christian that you immediately bonded with after you heard their testimony or after you got to know them? You know, it's so refreshing to find someone who has a heart for God, and we just really thank the Lord when we run into folks like that. You know, that's what Jonathan must have been feeling when he met David here. So the great connection they had was their faith in God and their, their love for the Lord. And that's, that's a great relationship when you have that with someone. Now, there's a principle here, too, that the closer we get to the Lord ourselves, the closer we get to those believers who really love the Lord. It's kind of like a triangle, if you can picture that, you know, the closer you get to the top of the triangle, the closer you get to the other side. And uh, that's a great principle for marriages, too. You know, as, as you are getting closer and your spouse is getting closer to the Lord, you're getting closer to each other as well. So I really like that picture, and I think that's a good principle here. Uh, he, uh, Jonathan walked close to the Lord, and now he finds someone else who's as close to the Lord, too. So Jonathan and David... They've got this great friendship. And it says that Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, does that sound familiar? <laughs> We're told to love our neighbor as ourself, right? So what we see between Jonathan and David is something we're supposed to be practicing ourselves with people. You know, their friendship it really stands out as a remarkable thing here in the Old Testament, and the Lord really points it out as something really special here. But that should almost be a common thing in our life as a believer in the New Testament, right? So we can learn some things about how we're supposed to practice this God-given love for people as we watch David and Jonathan interact. So keep an eye on them as we go through this and, and see what we can, we can learn from that. We can glean some stuff there. Now, there's another interaction I want us to keep an eye on, too, in our passage. And that's the interaction between King Saul and David. <laughs> and somebody said, there's a small percentage of Christians in our culture today that have a zeal for God. And they're the ones, they're also, these are the same ones who hold on to the Word of God for dear life. They see the Word of God as the standard for their life. And it's the final authority for them. And they want to live their life completely for the Lord. But the great majority of Christians in our culture today, they see the word of God as maybe having some good suggestions at best. But when it comes down to it, they're going to live their life the way they think is best for them. And the word of God will just have to take a back seat. King Saul was that kind of person. He's the picture of someone who claims to be a follower of God, but he likes to cut in front of the Lord and expect the Lord to follow his lead because he's going to do things in his own way regardless. So as we watch King Saul and his interaction with David, we can actually see the wrong way to live out our faith as we see that. 
So let's look at verse 2. It says, Saul took him that day, so he took David, and he would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Now, there's, a, there's some things that's been going on, and we saw the last couple chapters. Uh, Saul's had a problem, right, with some uh, bad spirits coming, says from the Lord, and troubling him. So he, uh, when that happens, he's got David there to play music and praise music, and that actually helps him get relief. So that's the relationship that's been going on. But David's been coming and going. I don't know if you remember back in chapter 17, and if you want to look at verse 15 in that chapter, just as a reminder, it says, but David occasionally, this is chapter 17, verse 15, but David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David was doing his job to help out King Saul when he was troubled, but he also would go back to his dad's place and take care of his dad's sheep once in a while. So we see something about David here. We know that he was recruited by King Saul to play his music and when he was troubled, you know, by the Lord, by the spirit from the Lord, and it, it really bothered Saul. But apparently David, he's a very faithful shepherd, and we saw that last time. So he felt he needed to go back home and time to take care of his father's sheep from time to time. Well, at this point in chapter 18, King Saul put a stop to that. And we're going to see a principle that relates to this in just a minute. We want to put some more, a little more verses with this. So look at verse 3, back in chapter 18. It says, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. And here's the reason. Because he loved him as his own soul. So again, we're told that. It says, And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him, and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, before we chew on these verses a little bit, I want us to catch a really important principle here that we see between Jonathan and his dad, King Saul. Did you notice that it says that Jonathan loved David, so he gave David some things? But King Saul didn't give it says in verse 2 that he took David. Isn't that interesting? So we see this principle. Those who love the Lord and love others are the givers. But those who don't really love the Lord and don't really love people are takers. And that's pretty clear in these relationships we see going on right here. And you think about this. It's because love gives. You know, love is a verb, when we love someone, it's a verb, and there's an action attached to it. And that action is giving. Now, think this through with me. You notice that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, and in speaking to husbands, the Lord says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So husbands are called to give their lives for their wife and to love them sacrificially, like Christ did for the church. And it even says in 1 Corinthians 7 that when you marry someone and you love them, the Lord says that the husband and wife are to give themselves to each other. I mean, it says this in 1 Corinthians 7. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. And why is that? 
because you have given yourselves to each other out of love. You know, Josh just taught us on that a couple times back there as he went through that passage. So love has this action word tied with it of giving. And you can't separate those scripturally. We, we see that all through the scriptures there. So if you want to know how loving you are, generally speaking, then you can ask yourself, am I a giver or am I a taker? And where do I fall on that scale, right? Because we're, we're, not, we're not perfect, right? We're sinners. We have our shortcomings. You know, we're naturally selfish because of our sin nature. So it's usually easier for us to take than it is to give. You know, but if, if God's in our life, and if we're living for him as we should, then we'll have his love working in us and making us more like him. And we'll become a giver rather than a taker. So that principle that love gives is very important for us to see in our culture because there's such a loud noise coming from our media that says love takes. <laughs> and of course, that's not love. It's called lust. <laughs> it's not giving it's only concerned about me taking. Okay. Now look at verse 3 again at what Jonathan did for David. We're going to look at some of the things here. It says he made a covenant with him. And one of the things he did of that in verse 4, it says he took off the robe that was on him and he gave this royal robe to David. And this symbolized that Jonathan was acknowledging that David was going to be the next king. Now, remember the Lord had already told King Saul that because of his disobedience, the royal line was not going to go through his family. So Jonathan was not going to be the next king of Israel. And that wasn't Jonathan's fault, that was his dad's fault. You know, and I'm not sure how much Jonathan was aware of it at this point, but I think he could see that the Lord had anointed David and that the Lord's hand of blessing was upon him as well. So Jonathan also gave David his personal weapons. You notice it lists the things he gave him. And, and as, a, as a man of war, as a real warrior here, you think about what he's handing to him. He gave him his armor as his protection. He gave him his sword. You know, it says he gave him his bow and he even gave him his belt, you know, which they would use to, to gird up their loins so they could run into battle and stuff. So he, he basically made himself defenseless as he gave all of these things to David. So as he's doing that, you think about what a commitment of loyalty. And in this covenant that was made, David didn't really have anything to offer because he didn't come from a royal family like Jonathan. So it really doesn't list anything that David has to bring to this covenant, right? But it was a covenant. It was agreement between the two of them. So it's very interesting as we, we look at this situation, all he had to offer to Jonathan really was his friendship and his love back to him. And I'm sure that's all Jonathan wanted in return anyway, because we see the heart of Jonathan. He's a really good guy. So this covenant they had, it kind of pictures God's covenant with us. He gave his own dear son. He gave us everything. And we didn't have anything to offer in return. You know, but now if we can give him our complete love in return, I'm sure that's what he's wanting too, because he loves us so much, right? Now, it's almost a side note here, but I think it's kind of an important observation if you chew on this a little bit. And somebody else made this. I, I thought it was really well said. It said, humanly speaking, it would appear that Jonathan, being the son of King Saul, he was going to be the next in line, you know, uh, to be king. 
But instead of seeing David as a threat to his own authority or his position, Jonathan wants to come alongside David and help him prosper. That's why he's taking care of him, giving him his, his weaponry and everything else here. So he's, he's not jealous. He's not upset about what God's doing in David's life. He's actually wanting to celebrate it and to be part of it, you know, in a good way. So we may need to check ourselves sometimes and ask, am I jealous or upset when I see the Lord working in another believer's life? You know, the Bible tells us to encourage one another and build one another up. That's what we're supposed to be doing, right? And you know, honestly, we don't have time for jealousy or vying for position. You know, we need to remind ourselves that we're on the same team. You know, that's something that Christians seem to forget a lot, you know. I think the enemy, he tries to keep us at odds with each other too because he knows that we're not as effective when we're like that. But let's go on to verse five. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he says he behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So David was very obedient to Saul, which was his authority. And that phrase where it says that David behaved wisely, it also has the meaning with it of prospering. So because David behaved wisely, the Lord saw to it that he was also successful. And that's what we see in the rest of the verse because Saul gave him a high position in the military, we're told, and it says the people respected David You know, even though he was a very young guy, remember, he's a young guy at this point, the youngest son, right, of Jesse there. So we see here that the character is even more important than age. So a young person can have the respect of others simply by having a godly character. And that should be encouraging. You know, uh, you go on to verse 6 here, it says, Now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning, from the slaughter of the Philistines, so it tells us the time element when uh, he came back from the battle, says that the women came out out of all the cities of Israel. And look what they were doing. They were singing, they were dancing, and it says they came out to meet King Saul, so don't, don't miss that. They came out with tambourines, they came out with joy, and they also had musical instruments. So we see here that the women are very excited, you know, and they're celebrating the victory of Israel's army. And that makes sense because these were their husbands and their sons that were coming back home, you know. So again, we see their celebration when our family, we should have the same heart, I guess, of celebrating, you know, in our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we've seen a victory in our life. Or, you know, or they've seen something happen in their life that the Lord's done for them. He's worked something out. And, and we should be rejoicing too. This is our family. You know, and we just should be thankful for that. So you come to verse 8. It says, so the women, they sang as they danced. And here's the song they came up with. Saul has slain his thousands. That's pretty remarkable. And it says, and David, his ten thousands. It says, then Saul was very angry. So I don't know if it was the tune or probably the words, you know. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sure it was the words. Saul was very angry, and it says the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. 
Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? So we can hear the anger in his words there. Now, think about this. These ladies came out to meet King Saul, it says, and his troops. And they weren't trying to put Saul down. That wasn't their point at all. They didn't say, man, Saul doesn't do nothing, but David does it all. That wasn't the words they used, right? So they were thanking the Lord for both of these people, Saul and David, in what they were saying. They were just rejoicing, you know, that David was in the picture now too, and how God had blessed Israel bringing up another warrior. (coughs) Excuse me. You know, you think about this. If you're Israel and you know you've got David on one side and Jonathan on the other, you're in pretty good hands because they're both following the Lord. They're not standing on their own. They're great warriors in the Lord. So these ladies here, they acknowledge Saul's victory as well. They weren't ignoring him. They thanked the Lord for that too. But that's not how King Saul took it, was it? So Saul here, you think about this, he wasn't showing love to David. He was using David. So if he would have been loving to David, he would have been rejoicing too. You know, he'd been saying, wow, I thank you, God, that you blessed us with such a mighty man that conquered the giant that was standing in our way. You should, you'd think there'd be great praise and rejoicing going on. <coughs> so we see another principle here too. If you love someone, you're not going to use them for your own selfish means, you know. So again, I said, we look at King Saul and we can see the wrong way to live out our faith. Now, King Saul felt very threatened here by David, and that's pretty obvious in his reaction. And rather than rejoicing that David was on his team, he used it instead to become jealous and very concerned about what David might do in the future. That's why he's saying, what is, uh, what is going to happen now? He's going to take the kingdom too, and lo and behold, that's exactly what was going to happen by the Lord's design. So verse 9 goes on. <laughs> Here's Saul. He's not getting any better. He's getting lower, isn't he? says, so Saul, I, David, from that day forward. So he kept an eye on David because he was very suspicious of him. And, you know, I think it's interesting if you kind of picture the guy that Saul was, pretty selfish and even more so at this point, he's probably looking at David of what would I do if I were in his position. And unfortunately, we do that with people sometimes. He's probably thinking, if I get all that praise... I'd say, I should be the guy in charge, not you. So he's very suspicious, and I think it's his own selfish nature that's, that's causing his problem here because he's thinking David must be like him. David's nothing like him. So look how Saul let this get under his skin. When he could have taken this as a blessing that David was for him and not against him, instead, he lets this whole harmless event ruin his day, and he made himself miserable over it. And you know, we really see how we can take things and really how they can have a detrimental effect on us if we take them the wrong way. This wasn't intended that way at all. And you know, Saul could have looked at it this way. God has called me to kill thousands, you know? And he's called David, he killed 10,000s. And if that's what David, if that's what God called him to and what he called me to, I'll just be content, you know? Paul tells us that in the New Testament, right? He said, I've learned to be content. It's a learning process, but he said, I've learned whether I'm abounding or whether I have nothing. (laughs) I've learned to just be content. And and that's where we find real peace, isn't it? To say, Lord, whatever you've called me to do, that's what I want to do. I'm not going to look at somebody else and say, well, I'm not doing that. And I, 
You know, that's not going to give us peace. That's going to cause us problems. So we'll just be content. But, but Saul here, King Saul, didn't do that at all. <clears throat> We're going to see something, too, how dangerous it is to allow jealousy to come into your life. You know, Saul let it destroy himself. And that's really what jealousy will do. Uh, that sin needs to be dealt with and repentance needs to happen because you're playing with a time bomb when you have jealousy. You know, as jealousy grows in a person's life, it pushes out the joy, and we see that here with him, and it even pushes out your effectiveness in ministry because it makes you focus more on you than it does on the Lord. And Saul is going to be distracted by this so that he's going to become less effective in his daily life and in his decision-making. Now he's got this hanging over him of, if I do this, what about David? You know, and it's like, why are you worried about that, man? Just do what you're supposed to do. So jealousy is not something you're supposed to allow it to remain in your life. And you think about this, you know, jealousy is what called Lucifer to fall. That's what caused him to fall, right? Because he was jealous. He wanted to be like God. So the devil exists today because of jealousy. So sometimes people downplay sins. Oh, it's not that big a deal. Jealousy is very deadly, <laughs> you know, and you need to really think that one through. Uh, let's go on to verse 10. And it happened on the next day. So right after this episode where Saul was already upset and angry, it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. And look what happened. He prophesied inside the house. So as this spirit came on him, and it wasn't a good spirit, this was a distressing spirit because of Saul's consistent disobedience to the Lord a while back. So the Lord basically gave him what he wanted, trouble in his life if you don't want to follow God's way. You know, but, but here when he starts to prophesy, this isn't prophecy from the Lord. Uh, there's false prophets that, that this same term is used for. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I want you to look at some of the false prophets of, da of Baal when Elijah had challenged them. If you want to turn over to 1 Kings 18, just turn forward a little bit in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 18, and look down to verse 26. It says in uh, 1 Kings 18, verse 26, so they took the bull which was given them, these are the false prophets, and they prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning, uh, even till noon, saying, oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made, and so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud, and they cut themselves, as was their custom with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out on them. And it says, and when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. So these are false prophets, and they're prophesying. It's not from the Lord, it's from the, from the enemy here. It says, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. <laughs> so there's the picture of false prophets. But I wanted you to see that that term is used for prophecy, that it's not of the Lord. And I know we're used to seeing, especially as we go through the Old Testament, that spirit comes on somebody that prophesies, it's a message from the Lord. But not in this case. This is not uh, the Lord speaking here. So back in our passage in, in uh, 1 Samuel 18, when, when Saul was distressed, David did his job to comfort Saul. I mean, back in verse 10, it says, 
uh, that when this distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, so David played music with his hand, as at other times, he did what he was supposed to, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. (laughs) So the Lord gives us a little tidbit of information here. And you know, a little common sense here, (laughs) guys that are tormented by demons they shouldn't have spears anywhere close to them, much less right in their hand, right? I mean, you don't want that. So this unfortunately reminds me of the guy who shot the pastor a few years ago just north of us, if you remember that. This guy was a disturbed individual, and his family knew that. And some people who knew the family said, oh yeah, this guy always had a hunting knife on him and a gun on him. And he'd walk around the parking lot and talk to himself and stuff, you know? This was at his, his parents' business. And, and that was before concealed carry, so that's not even legal that he had this, this gun like that. And I don't think he'd qualify for that anyway, okay? But disturbed people shouldn't have weapons. But if you notice, most of the mass shootings in our country recently have been by disturbed individuals. And now that they're coming out with some of the more fuller reports on that, their psychiatrists they were going to knew they were at a breaking point. But they didn't tell the authorities you know, about that situation. And apparently there's some kind of legal thing where they're not supposed to do that. Like, wow, wasn't it nice when we respected God more years ago and we had common sense in our culture? But we seem to get away from that. So the Lord tells us, here's King Saul. He's a troubled man and he has a spear in his hand. So you know nothing good is gonna come of this. Then in verse 11, and Saul cast the spear for he said, and I just wonder these words coming out if this is part of the prophecy he was making. I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now, I'm pretty sure that was a demonic thought that was put in Saul's mind. And the devil doesn't mind putting thoughts in our head in the first person. If you notice, I will do this. <laughs> he knows that we're going to accept the thought better if, he, if it's put in our own words. And, and I will do this. We don't question that thought too much, you know. I have figured out, too, that, you know, when the Lord speaks to us, if you ever hear that still, small voice, and it's probably just a thought that passes through or something that seems to be on your heart, I see the Lord usually talks to us in you. (laughs) You know, he says, I want you to do this, or you should do that, or something like that. But the enemy, he's sneaky. He is the devil. He comes in, and he will put that thought in your mind of, I want to do this, or I'm going to do that. So be very careful here, because this thought didn't come, I don't think, directly from Saul. He was upset, but I think that the the thing that pushed him here was actually the thought from the enemy. Well, just like David, you know, if we want to serve the Lord, we we better get used to dodging spears and darts thrown by the enemy because it's going to happen. You know, when we step out to serve the Lord, we will be attacked. And of course, we've learned that, right, as we've stepped out to serve him. And the enemy knows that he can't take us out, but he definitely wants us to back up you know, to be discouraged. And that's why the Lord tells us to put on the full armor of God and stand, you know. Don't fall back. Uh, Just stand your ground and don't let the enemy cause you to back down because that's what he's trying to do. So in verse 12 here, Saul was afraid of David. And look at the reason here. Because the Lord was with him, (laughs) but he had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence, couldn't stand to have David around anymore, and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and he came in before the people. Now, should the fact that the Lord is with someone 
ever bother us, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I guess if we're not on the side of the Lord, it would bother us, you know? And I mean, it sure bothers the devil to know that the Lord is with somebody. So here, Saul is really troubled over this, and it really concerns him that he sees that the Lord is with David. Wow. <clears throat> you wouldn't think that would upset a person, but it does. In verse 14, it says, and, and David... Oh, and by the way, when, when Saul sent him out with these, uh, this captain over a thousand, it wasn't that he was trying to give him a promotion. He's trying to get him killed. And we see that coming in the context as we go further here. So verse 14, it says, And David behaves, behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. So get this, despite what Paul was try, or Saul was trying to mess up in his life, David kept coming out smelling like a rose. And don't you love that? That the enemy can try to beat up on us, he can try to trip us, he can try to steal things from us and take it away, but all things work together for good, right? To those who love the Lord, called according to his purpose. So the Lord always turns those things around. So I think it's really cool to, to see that David just keeps coming out with the presence of the Lord with him. Verse 15, therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, didn't say he rejoiced, <laughs> said he was afraid of him. So again, to see someone do things the right way shouldn't discourage somebody or cause them to have more fear, you know? Yeah, it says a lot about that person, doesn't it? Verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved David. And it says, because he went out and he came in before them. So David was really a beloved hero at this point because of his military victories. They'd see him go out to fight some more Philistines and, oh, man, this is great. He's going to come back. Man, it's going to be cool when he comes back. We get to hear the stories. Sure enough, he'd come back, you know, and they'd hear how they whooped up on him. So the people loved him. They thought, man, we got a real hero here. Yeah. Verse 17. Then Saul said to David, here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Now, remember, he was supposed to do that, right? Whoever killed Goliath, that was one of the blessings or benefits that was supposed to happen. Of course, he hadn't taken care of that yet, but now he's going to do that. So he said, I'll give her to you as wife. And here's the, the condition. Because remember, you're supposed to have a dowry to pay the father here when you're going to get married. And uh, if you're going to marry his daughter and David doesn't have really anything to offer. So here's what Saul requires of him. Only be valiant for me. In other words, stay on my side. Don't come against me and fight the Lord's battles. <laughs> so he's going to make sure he's fighting for the right side. And here's Saul's reasoning on this too. So for Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Isn't he sly? You know, so Saul wanted him dead, but he didn't want to take the rap for it. <laughs> so now he could say, hey, he died in battle. You know, poor guy. That was his, his thinking on that one. But through all of this, the Lord's preparing David, you know, for what he has for him in the future. David needed to learn what it was like to partially obey the Lord and, and see what that looks like and all the disasters and the bad decisions and everything that happens because of it. So the Lord gave him a front row seat just to see what that looks like. This is one of those times where you're learning what not to do. And that is part of the preparation for serving the Lord. It is not a fun time. You know, if you've stepped out to serve the Lord and he has put you in places like this, 
you're thinking, why, why, Lord, am I here? And there's no answer from the Lord because it's a time of training and it's a time where you just have to hang in there and keep doing what God's called you to do and learn the lesson well of what not to do so you don't follow that. So be patient. You know, if you're at that process right now where God's preparing you for something and it's not a very comfortable time, the Lord knows what he's doing and he knows what we need. We might say, Lord, I think I got this lesson down. I don't think I need this. Lord says, oh yeah, you do. I like what somebody said. In God preparing David and letting him see King Saul and all the bad stuff he did, he was trying to get the Saul out of David. Because <laughs> we're all sinners, right? We're all selfish. We're all takers if you give us a chance. It's only by the grace of God and the work of God in our life that we can become givers and have a heart like God's. So sometimes the Lord puts us in those places to take out stuff that we don't even know is in there or we don't want to admit is in there, right? Yeah, and some people wonder, you know, why doesn't the Lord just destroy the cults? You know, why doesn't he stop them from coming and knocking our door and stuff? Why does he continue to allow them? What he's doing is he's allowing them to train his children to study the word of God. He allows false teachers to come into the church, you know, and, and they try to get to the pastors. And what does that do? That causes pastors to have to study more. You know, I've had folks come in and talk to me about things through the last few years, and it's caused me to study things I really didn't even want to dig into in the scripture, but I had to, you know. And I even know a guy who's in the ministry today. He's a Bible teacher for that very reason. He said he was a young man, teenager, and a cult came knocking at his door, and he answered the door, and the guy was just throwing scriptures from the Old Testament right and left at him, and he couldn't come up with any answers. And then when he said that guy finally left him alone and he walked away from his door, he said, I will never happen again. I'm going to study this Bible and I'm going to get to know it and no false teachers coming to my door and embarrassing me again like that. So I really believe that's part of what's going on. The Lord allows that to continue to force us to study more because we need that. We, we need to have these pushes once in a while, you know. <clears throat> so this is part of the preparation. We get to verse 18. So David said to Saul, you know, as he's been offered this, this daughter <laughs> uh, to be his, his, uh, the king, to be his wife, he said, who am I and what is my life? Are my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? He said, you know, I, I'm not that guy. He says, but it, but it happened at that time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Melthite as a wife. So David was, was very humble here. He's saying, I don't think I qualify to be the son-in-law to the king, so I don't think I can follow through with that. And then Saul, in the meantime, has a flip in his brain or something here, and the daughter that he promised to David, he gives to this other guy. <laughs> yeah, it's probably some ruler he's wanting to make a deal with or something. So here's David, very humble, very consistent in that, and here's Saul, very messed up, and pretty consistent in that too right now. So verse 20 goes on. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. This is the younger daughter. And they told Saul, they said, hey man, your, your youngest daughter, she really thinks David's something. And it says, and the thing pleased him. So King Saul is kind of happy to hear this. So Saul said this, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. 
Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. (laughs) You notice how Saul would use his own family? That's how messed up he was. He didn't even have love for his own family. You know, love for self overrides love for family? Really? Well, we see that too much too, don't we? Verse 22, Saul commanded his servants, because he heard that David's response, he probably wouldn't accept this too well, so he said, communicate with David secretly. (laughs) Don't you like the way the, the enemy works here? Communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul tries secrecy and flattery. (laughs) What a nasty mixture, huh? Verse 23, so Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David, and David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, in this manner David spoke. So they took the message to David and they tried to do it the sly way and use the flattery and it just kind of deflected off of David. He didn't fall for that. Again, he's not like King Saul. He's not gonna get a big head, you know, when people start pumping you up here. So he says, I'm still the poor guy. I'm still, you know, a lightly esteemed man. He says, I'm not very important. So I don't think I qualify for this. So they took the message back to King Saul in verse 24 and they told him he's not gonna go for this one. You know, and by the way, if if flattery starts to come your way, beware, (laughs) something is up, right? Verse 25, then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, so he said, I want you to keep going on this one. The king does not desire any dowry. You don't have to worry about coming up with money, but here's what he says. He's going to name this, but 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies says, but Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So he's saying, man, if I got David distracted, and he's thinking about, you know, I'm gonna, gonna have this, this daughter, and he's gonna go on the battle and try to take on these 200 guys, it's probably not gonna come out too good for him. So good old King Saul has another plan. Notice something here. Notice how persistent the enemy can be, all right? Saul's plan was for David to get in a large enough battle where he's going to get killed. What do you think the enemy is planning for us, you know? Another way to try to trip us up. So be alert. Stay in the word, right? Verse 26 goes on. So when his servants told David these words, you know, that this is what's going to require, it pleased David. It says it pleased him well to become the king's son-in-law. He's like, well, I can come up with that if that's what he wants, So now the days had not expired, which is an interesting thing the Lord told us here. Apparently, Saul put a deadline on this this whole thing to happen, probably hoping that David's going to push himself to exhaustion and thus become more vulnerable to the enemy. Boy, this, this, uh, this guy's pretty slick in what he comes up with here. So we need to be wary that our enemy has all kinds of tricks up his sleeve too, all right? Be careful. Verse 27 says, therefore, here's what David did. David arose and he went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And it says, and David brought their foreskins and they gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And 
Can't you just see David counting these out for Saul? 100, 101, 102. I mean, this is a pretty crazy deal, and Saul's probably grinding his teeth more with every number he's counting here. So he's getting more angry. He was not wanting this as an outcome. But at the end of verse 27, I guess he was embarrassed, nothing else he could do. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. Now, I thought about this too. He said he was going to give this daughter to David and she was going to be a snare to him. Now, at this point, remember, she loves him. She's just enthralled with David. Later on, there is some conflict with her we see come along. But I'm just wondering if Saul doesn't know his daughter a little bit and thinking she's going to trip him up. I know what she's like, and she's a problem for anybody. So I don't know. I'm just wondering. That's just my thought on that one. Could be wrong. So anyway, he gives his daughter to David. All right, verse 28. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. So what's his response? And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. So now he puts up the wanted poster. (laughs) And he's going to talk about that more in the next chapter. David now is an enemy, declared enemy, of the king, and that's the way it's going to play out for a while here. So this fear, it just kept growing in Saul. But you think about it, isn't it amazing, you know, what we'll do to ourselves when simple repentance would have solved everything? You know, we are hard-headed, aren't we? I mean, sometimes we'll just keep going in the wrong direction when all we have to do is stop and confess to the Lord and just turn around and say, Lord, I've been going 100% the wrong direction. I've been fighting you on this. I've been wrong. And Lord, I just, right now, I stop in my tracks and I say, I confess my sin. Cleanse me, Lord, as you promised you would when I confess and help me just completely walk behind you now and follow you. You know, and Saul's not gonna do that. That's not his goal. So verse 30 says, then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. So again, the more Saul does to try to come against him, the higher the Lord lifts him up. Isn't that amazing? So we see something here. The the training of the Lord was paying off in David's life. And and that's something to remind yourself too, because when you go through those times, they're really difficult. And like I said, you... You wonder sometimes, why am I here, Lord? Why are you, you putting me in this place? And I know you put me here, and, and I'm facing things I didn't want to face. I'm going through things I didn't want to go through. Why are you you're doing that, Lord? But remind yourself, it's paying off. You know, the Lord's going to let you see down the road that it was all worth it, right? So I don't know if we think about it enough, but the hard times that the Lord puts us through, it's just the times when we, we don't, see things working out as we think they should. It's, and those are the times that are probably the, the best times of training we've got. And we just don't like them. And you know, God's doing this because he wants to accomplish great things. And when he wants to do that, it takes a tremendous amount of training. We don't see David complaining here all, which is amazing. You know, what a guy. But I'm sure he's like, wow, this is tough stuff. I'm trying to comfort this king and he's throwing spears at me. I don't get that, you know? And we wouldn't either. But think about how much training it takes. Think about the Olympic athletes. Athletes, you know, they have trained for years. 
You know, they have a few moments of glory there to try to achieve the goal they've been striving for and sweating for and working so hard for and sacrificing for. It took a lot of training to get to that point. You know, so, so don't fight the training process and try not to get discouraged through it. The Lord knows what he's doing and he knows what we need. So we're gonna stop at this point. <coughs> and uh, if, if someone here today, they don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Jesus took your sin upon himself. He paid for, you, paid for that sin completely on the cross. And he said, it is finished, you know, when he was done. And then the Lord proved that he accepted that by the resurrection. So all you need is Jesus. You receive Christ. You thank the Lord that he died for your sins. The Bible says by putting your faith in him, your sins are completely removed. And, and you have eternal life given to you. So we thank the Lord for that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word of truth. I pray, Lord, today that you spoke to us. You know where each of us are at right now. And Lord, for any training you have put us through, we praise you. For any training we're going through right now, we want to thank you for that, Lord. And any training you have waiting for us, help us to stand strong and to take that training and uh, that you would sharpen us and get us to be the most effective servant that you can, Lord. And help us always to have that servant heart as we see here David had. He never gave that up, Lord. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to serve you. If someone is here today and they don't know Jesus, I ask you, Lord, today, speak to their heart. Put that, that tugging of the spirit there, that conviction. Let them see that they really need Jesus, Lord. And we thank you for the day you brought us to that in our own life. And we want to give you the praise for that. Lord, all glory, praise, and honor goes to you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.